Chapter Eleven: The Maid of Maiden Lane by Amelia E. Barr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: We Have Done with Tears and Treasons. Here is a letter from Arenta," repeated the doctor to his wife, who was just entering the room. "Come, Ava, and listen to what she has to say. I have no doubt it will be interesting." Then Cornelia read aloud the following words: "My dear friend Cornelia." If to-day I could walk down Maiden Lane, if to-day I could see you and talk to you, I should imagine myself in heaven. For as to this city, I think that in hell the name of Paris must have spread itself far and wide. Indeed, I often wonder if I am yet on the earth, or if I have gone away in my sleep to the country of the devil and his angels. Even as I am writing to you, my pen is shaking with terror, for I hear the tumble come jolting along, and I know that it is loaded with innocent men and women, who are going to the guillotine and I know also that it is accompanied by a mob of dreadful creatures, mostly women, for I hear them singing, no, screaming, in a kind of rage, Ça ira les aristocrates à la lanterne. Do you remember our learning in those happy days at Bethlehem, of the slaughter of the Christians by Nero? Very well, right here in the Paris of Marat and Robespierre, you may hear constantly the same brutal cry that filled the Rome of the Caesars, Death to the Christians. Famine, anarchy, murder are everywhere, and I live from moment to moment, trembling if a step comes near me. For Athenais is imprudence itself. His opinions will be the death of him. He will not desert the Girondists, though Mr. Morris tells him their doom is certain. Marat is against them, and the Jacobins, who are deliriously wicked, are against them, and the mob of the Faubourgs is against them, and this mob is always of one mind, always on the spot, and always hungry and ready for anarchy and blood besides which they are already accused of having sold themselves to mr pitt very often i have heard my dear father talking of universal suffrage as the bulwark of liberty well then we have now and here an universal suffrage that is neither a fraud nor a fiction and as athenais says it is expressing itself every minute in the crimes of the holy guillotine and yet paris makes a pretence of being gay and of enjoying itself we go to the theatre and the opera and we dance, as it were, red, wed-shod to the hideous strains of Charmagnole. It is indeed a dance of death. The other night we were at a reception given by Madame Talma to the victorious General de Maurier's. All the Brissot party was there. Your father will remember Brissot de Bourvie very well. He was greatly petted by Mrs. J. in the aristocracy of New York and Philadelphia. Jefferson made a friend of him, and even Washington talked with him, and about his book on our country. Then he passed himself off as a noble— but he is really the son of an innkeeper. I had so often heard of him that I regarded with interest his pale face and grave, melancholy manner. He was accompanied by Camille de Moulins and by Danton, the latter a man almost terrible in his ugliness. David, the painter of Socrates, was there, and had his hair frizzed, and was dressed splendidly, and with him was Chenier, more tragic-looking than any of his plays. The salons were filled with flowers and beautiful women, among them the majestic Madame Vestries, and the lovely Mademoiselle Candiel, who was singing a song when there arose a sudden indescribable noise, growing louder and louder, and then the cry of Marat, Marat, and the friend of the people entered. Now I shall spare a few minutes to tell you that no one has made frightful enough his large bony face, his thin lips, and his livid complexion. He wore an old carmagnole, a dirty handkerchief twisted about his neck, leather breeches, shoes without stockings, and a piece of red cotton round his head, from which there hung a few locks of greasy hair. A nervous twitching keeps him constantly moving, and he has the leprosy, this is well known. 
He walked straight to de Maurier's, who said disdainfully, "'Ah, are you the man they call Marat?' Marat immediately demanded from him an account of military measures he had taken. They had some sharp conversation which I did not hear, and Marat finally went away uttering the most insulting threats, and leaving everyone in a state of mortal terror. The next day the newsboys were shouting, "'The discovery of a great plot by Marat, the friend of the people, great meeting of aristocrats at Talmas, etc.' This is the kind of pleasure we have. As to religion, there is no longer any religion. Everywhere the Almighty is spoken of as the soi distant God. The monarchy is abolished, and yet so ignorant are the leaders of the people that when Brousseau mentioned the word republic in Petion's house, Robespierre said with a grin, Republic, republic, what's a republic? Spying and fear and death penetrate into the most private houses, above all fear constant fear of every one with whom you come in contact this feeling is so universal that someone is conjugated it thus i am afraid thou art afraid he is afraid we are afraid you are afraid they are afraid for as death has become officially declared an endless sleep any crime is possible the mob have no fear of hell and as for the guillotine it is their opera and their perpetual comedy very soon these things must bring on france the chastisement of the lord and I shall not be sorry for it. I have told you the truth about our condition, because I have just had a letter from my father, and he talks of leaving his business in Klaus Bergen's care, and coming here to look after me. You must convince him that he could do me no good whatever, and that he might do me much harm. He is outspoken as a Zealander, and what is in his head and his heart would come to his lips. Also, if it should come to a flight, he would embarrass me very much. Tell him not to fear— Arenta says not to fear. I may indeed have to take a seat in the terrible armchair, but I shall not go to the guillotine. I know that. While Minister Morris is here, I have a friend that can do all that can be done. I have had a few letters from Rem, but they do not satisfy me. He is in love, and not with you. Will you please inform me what that means? Say to Aunt Angelica that I am astonished at her silence, and ask our good Domine to pray that I may soon return to a country where God reigns. Never again do I wish to spend one minute in a place where there is no God, for whatever they may call that place, its real name is Hell. Write me a long letter and tell me all the news of New York, with my respectful remembrance to your dear father and mother. I am always your loving friend. Arenta, Marquise de Tonnerre. Poor Arenta, said the doctor when Cornelia had finished the wretched epistle. She is, however, showing the mettle of the race from which she sprang. The spirit of the men who fought Alva is in her, and I think she will be a match for Marat, if it comes to that. Suppose you go and see Van Arians, and give him all the comfort you can. Are you too weary? I should like to see him. I am not tired now. Home is such a good doctor. I think you will find him in his house. He comes from his office very early these days. Cornelia crossed the street and was going to knock at the door, when Van Ariens hastily opened it. His broad face shone with pleasure, and when Cornelia told him her errand, he was in a hurry of loving anxiety to hear what his child had written. "'I understand,' he said when he had heard the letter. "'She is frightened, the poor little one, but she will smile and say, "'It is nothing. That is her way. However, I yet think I must go to her.' "'Do not.' urged Cornelia. France is now at war with Holland, and you would be recognized as a Dutchman. 
that is so my tongue would tell tales on me and to go even to heaven by the guillotine is not what a good man would wish no indeed and you may see by arenta's letter that she does not fear the guillotine come over to-night and talk to my father and mother and i will tell you what i saw in philadelphia well then i will come is madame jacobus back in new york yet she is in london but why in london that i know not two reasons i can suppose but which is right or if either be right that is beyond my certainty is her sister-in-law dead she is dead her husband was an englishman perhaps then it is about some property in england she has gone if it is not that of nothing else can i think but captain jacobus but my sister angelica had ever two ways nothing at all she would say about her money or her business but constantly to every one she would talk of her husband i think then it is money or property that has taken her to england for if it had been jacobus to the whole town she would have told it then he took both cornelia's hands in his and looking at her earnestly said poor rem impossible is it quite impossible sir when he got thy letter refusing his love and offer he went to boston i think he will not come back to me i am very sorry he said simply and let her hands drop i am sorry also for your sake i hear however that rem is doing well in boston better than his hopes very good fortune has come to him and you sir i am not doing much at present but smith and warren do less in an hour or two to your house i will come there is plenty to talk about the next day cornelia walked down broadway to madame jacobus's house it was closed and desolate-looking and she sighed as she compared its old bright spotless comfort with its present empty forlornness the change typified the change in her heart and love but ere she could entertain the thought her eyes fell upon the trees in the garden full of the pale crinkled leaves of spring and she saw the early flowers breaking through the dark earth and the early shrubs bursting into white and golden blooms in some way they had a message for her and she went home with hope budding in her heart soon afterwards mrs moran heard her singing at her work the far east glows the morning wind blows fresh and free should not the hour that wakes the rose awaken thee no longer sleep o oh, listen now i wait and weep but where art thou from one to another song she went simple melodies all of them delightful little warblings of love which except for their gladness and loyalty had nothing in them to charm she was a deserted maiden her lover had palpably and with extreme cruelty deceived her but she had grieved and forgiven and love brings its reward even if unrequited those who love and have loved are the better for the revelation for love for love's sake enriches and blesses the lover to the very end of life she did not forget for love has everlasting remembrance and she did not wish to forget for a great affection is a great happiness and the whole soul can find shelter in it neither were her days monotonous or unhappy all the real pleasures of life lie in narrow compass and she found herself very often a little hurried for want of time she had not it is true the resources of the woman of to-day no literary musical social or sporting clubs existed for cornelia but she had duties and devices that made every moment pleasant or profitable many hours daily were given to fine needlework calm quiet hours full of thought as well as work she had her music to practise new books and papers to read calls to make mantua makers and milliners to review dinners and dances and tea-parties to attend shopping to look after 
delicate bits of darning and mending to exercise her skill on, creams and pasties and cakes to prepare, visitors to welcome and entertain, and many other duties which sprang up, as extras do, unexpectedly, and yet which opened the door for very pleasant surprises and events. Besides which there was her father. After her return from school she had always driven with him to some extent, but his claim on her now was often a little exacting. He said the fresh spring winds were good for her, and that she stayed in the house too much, and there was no evading the dictum that came with both parental and medical authority. Perhaps this demand on her time would not have been made if the Hydes had been in New York, but Dr. Moran by frequent inquiries satisfied himself that they were yet in Philadelphia, and for his daughter's satisfaction he frequently said as they drove up Maiden Lane, "'We will take the Greenwich Road. There is no fear of our meeting anyone we do not wish to see.' She understood the allusion, and was satisfied to escape meetings that promised her nothing but pain. In the month of May there occurred one of those wet spells which are so irritating, growing weather, of course, but very tiresome to those who felt the joy of spring escaping them. Week after week it was too damp, or the winds were too sharp, or the roads too heavy for quick driving, and thus the month of all months went out of the calendar with few red-letter days to brighten it. Then June came in royally, and Cornelia was glad of the sunshine and the breeze and the rapid canter, and for a week or two she was much out with her father. But he was now ever on the watch, and she judged from the circumstance that the Hydes were back in New York, besides which he did not any longer give her the assurance of not meeting anyone they did not wish to see. One exquisite day, as they went up Maiden Lane, the doctor said, My friend, General Hewitt, sails for England today, and we will go and wish him a good voyage. So to the pier they went, and the doctor left his carriage, and taking Cornelia on his arm, walked down to where the English packet was lying. They were a little too late to go on board, for the shoremen were taking away the gangplank, and the sailors preparing to lift the anchor. But the general stood leaning over the side of the vessel, and exchanged some last words with his friend. While Cornelia listened, she became suddenly conscious of the powerful magnetism of some human eye, and obeying its irresistible attraction she saw George Hyde steadily regarding her. He stood by the side of his father, as handsome as on that May morning when she had first looked love into her heart. She was enthralled again by his glance, and never for one moment thought of resisting the appeal it made to her. With a conscious tenderness she waved him an adieu, whose spirit he could not but feel. In the same moment he lifted his hat and stood bareheaded, looking at her with a pathetic inquiry, which made her inwardly cry out, "'Oh, what does he mean?' The packet was moving, the wind filled the blowing sails, the hoarse crying of the sailor-men blended in with the good-byes of the passengers, and the earl, aware of the sad and silent parting within his sight, moved away as Cornelia again waved a mute farewell to her lost lover. Then the doctor touched her. "'Why did you do that?' he asked angrily. "'Because I must do it, father. I cannot help it. I desire to do it.' I'm in a hurry. Let us go home. Filling her eyes with the beauty of the splendid-looking youth still standing bareheaded watching her, seeing even such trivial things as his long cloak thrown backwards over his shoulder, his white hand holding his lifted hat and the wind-tossed curls of his handsome head, she turned away with a sigh. The doctor drove rapidly to Maiden Lane, and did not on the way speak a word, and Cornelia was glad of it. That image of her lover standing on the moving ship watching her with his heart in his eyes filled her whole consciousness. Never would it be possible for her to forget it, or to put any other image in its place. She thanked her good angel for giving her such a comforting memory. It seemed as if the sting had been taken out of her sorrow. Henceforward she was resolved to love without a doubt. She would believe in Joris, no matter what she had seen or what she had heard. There were places in life to which, alas, truth could not come, and this might be one of them. Though all the world blamed her lover, she would excuse him. Her heart might ache, her eyes might weep, 
but in that aching head and in those weeping eyes his splendid image would live in that radiant dimness which makes the unseen face often more real than the present one dr moran divined something of this resolute temper and it made him silent he felt that his daughter had come to a place where she had put reason firmly aside and given her whole assent to the assurances of her intuition he had no arguments for an antagonism of this kind what could he say to a soul that presaged a something and then believed in it his instinctive sagacity told him that silence was now the part of wisdom but though he took her silently home he was conscious of a great relief his watch was over now a woman's intuition is like a leopard's spring it seizes the truth if it sees it at all at the first bound and it was by this unaccountable mental agility cornelia had arrived at the conviction of her lover's fidelity at any rate she felt confident that if circumstances had compelled him to be false to her the wrong had been sincerely mourned and she was able to forgive the offence that was blotted out with tears she reflected also that now he was so far away it would be possible for her to call upon madame van hemskirk and also upon madame jacobus as soon as she returned but if hyde had remained in new york these houses would necessarily be closed to her for he was a constant visitor at both she resolved therefore to call upon madame van hemskirk the following week she expected the old lady might treat her a little formally perhaps even with some coldness but she thought it worth while to test her kindness joris had once told her that his grandfather and grandmother both approved their love and they must know of his desertion and also the reason for it yet there was in her heart such a reluctance to take any step that had the appearance of seeking her lost lover that she put off this visit day after day finding the weather or in some household duty always a fair excuse for doing so until one morning the doctor said at breakfast councillor de vries died yesterday and there is to be a great funeral every dutchman in town will be there and many others beside he has left an immense fortune who told you this asked mrs moran i met van heemskirk and his wife going there madame de vries is their daughter now you will see great changes take place what do you mean john madame de vries has long wanted to build a mansion equal to their wealth but the councillor would never leave the house he built at their marriage madame will now build and her children take their places among the great ones of the city de vries was an oddity very few people will be sorry to lose him he had no good quality but money and he was the most unhappy of men about its future disposal i never understood until i knew him how wretched a thing it is to be merely rich this conversation again put off cornelia's visit and she virtually abandoned the idea then one morning mrs moran said cornelia i wish you to go to william irvin's for some hosiery and kindle cottons it is a new store down the lane at number ninety and i hear his cloths are strangely cheap go and examine them for me very well mother i will also look in at fisher's and it was at fisher's that she saw madame van hemskirk she was talking to mr henry fisher as they advanced from the back of the store and cornelia had time to observe that madame was in deep mourning and that she had grown older-looking since she had last seen her as they came forward madame raised her eyes and saw cornelia and then hastily leaving the merchant she approached her good morning madame said cornelia with a cheerful smile good morning miss step aside once with me a few words i have to say to you and as she spoke she drew cornelia a little apart from the crowd at the counter and looking at her sternly said one question only why then did you treat my grandson so badly a shameful thing it is to be a flirt i am not a flirt madame and i did not treat your grandson badly no indeed yes indeed he told me so himself he told you so he told me so surely he did that i treated him badly 
"'Pray, then, what else? "'You let a young man love you. "'You let him tell you so. "'You tell him, yes, I love you, "'and then when he says marry me, you say no. "'Such ways I call bad, very bad. "'Not worthy of my jaws, are you? "'And so then I am glad you said no.' "'I do not understand you.' "'Neither did you understand my Joris. "'A great mistake he made, and he did not understand you. "'And I do not understand such ways of the girls of this day. "'They are shameless, and I am ashamed of you.' "'Madame, you are very rude.' "'And very false are you.' "'I am not false.' "'My Joris told me so. "'Truth itself is Joris. "'He would not lie. "'He would not deceive.' "'If your grandson told you I had deceived him and refused to marry him, "'let it be so.' I have no wish to contradict your grandson. That you cannot do. I am ashamed. Madame, I wish you good morning. And with these words Cornelia left the store. Her cheeks were burning. The old lady's angry voice was in her ears, and she felt the eyes of every one in the store upon her, and she was indignant and mortified at a meeting so inopportune. Her heart had also received a new stab, and she had not at the moment any philosophy to meet it. Joris had evidently told his grandmother exactly what the old lady affirmed, she had not a doubt of that. But why? Why had he lied about her? Was there no other way out of his entanglement with her? She walked home in a hurry, and as soon as possible shut herself in her room to consider this fresh wrong and injustice. She could arrive at only one conclusion. Annie's most unexpected appearance had happened immediately after his proposal to herself. He was pressed for time. His grandparents would surely be especially likely to embarrass him concerning her claims, and of course the quickest and surest way to prevent questioning on the matter— was to tell them that she had refused him. That fact would close their mouths in sympathy for his disappointment, and there would be no further circumstances to clear up. It was the only explanation of Madame's attitude that was possible, and she was compelled to accept it, much as it humiliated her. And then, after it had been accepted and sorrowed over, there came back to her those deeper assurances, those sole assertions, which she could not either examine or define, but which she felt compelled to receive. He loves me. I feel it. It is not his fault. I must not think wrong of him. There was still Madame Jacobus to hope for. She was so shrewd and so kindly that Cornelia felt certain of her sympathy and wise advice. But month after month passed away, and Madame's house remained empty and forlorn-looking. Now and then there came short, fateful letters from Arenta, and Van Ariens, utterly miserable, visited them frequently that he might be comforted with their assurances of his child's ability to manage the very worst circumstances in which she could be placed. And so the long summer days passed, and the winter approached again. But before that time Cornelia had at least attained to the wisest of all the virtues, that calm, hushed contentment, which is only another name for happiness, that contentment which accepts the fact that there is a chain of causes linked to effects by an invincible necessity, and that whatever is, could not have wisely been but so. And if this was fatalism, it was at least a brighter thing than the languid pessimism which would have led her life among quicksands to end it in wreck. One day at the close of October she put down her needlework with a little impatience. I am tired of sewing, mother, and will walk down to the battery and get a breath of the sea. I shall not stay long. On her way to the battery she was thinking of Hyde, and of their frequent walks together there. And for once she passed the house of Madame Jacobus without a glance at its long-closed windows. It was growing dark as she returned, and ere she quite reached it she was aware of a glow of firelight and of candlelight from the windows. She quickened her steps and saw a servant well known to her standing in the open door, directing two men who were carrying in trunks and packages. She immediately accosted him. "'Has Madame returned at last, Amir?' she asked joyfully. "'Madame has returned home. She is weary. She is not alone. She will not receive to-night.' "'Surely not. I did not think of such a thing. 
Tell her only that I am glad, and will call as soon as she can see me. The man's manner, usually so friendly, was shy and peculiar, and Cornelia felt saddened and disappointed. And yet why? she asked herself. Madame is but reached home. I did not wish to intrude upon her. Amir need not have thought so. However, I am glad she is back again. And she walked rapidly home to the thoughts which this unexpected arrival induced. They were hopeful thoughts, leaning, however she directed them, towards her absent lover. She was sure Madame would clearly see to the very bottom of what she could not understand. She went into her mother's presence full of renewed expectations, and met her smile with one of unusual brightness. "'Madame Jacobus is at home,' said Mrs. Moran, before Cornelia could speak. "'She sent for your father just after you left the house, and I suppose that he is still there.' "'Is she sick?' "'I do not know. I fear so, for the visit is a long one.' It continued so much longer that the two ladies took their tea alone, nor could they talk of any other subject than Madame and her most unexpected call for Dr. Moran's services. It was always the Dutch Dr. Gansfort she had before, and she was ever ready to scoff at all others as pretenders. I do wonder what keeps your father so long. It was near ten o'clock when Dr. Moran returned, and his face was sombre and thoughtful, the face of a man who has been listening for hours to grave matters, and who had not been able to throw off their physical reflection. Have you had tea, John? No. Give me a good strong cup, Ava. I'm tired with listening and feeling. She poured it out quickly, and after he had taken the refreshing drink, Cornelia asked, Is Madame very ill? She is wonderfully well. It is her husband. Captain Jacobus. Who else? She has brought him home, and I doubt if she has done wisely. What has happened, John? Surely you will tell us. There is nothing to conceal. I have heard the whole story. Very pitiful story but yet like enough to end well. Madame told me that the day after her sister-in-law's burial, James Lauder, a Scotchman who had often sailed with Captain Jacobus, came down to Charleston to see her. He had sought her in New York and been directed by her lawyer to Charleston. He declared that, having had occasion to go to Guy's Hospital in London to visit a sick comrade, he saw there Captain Jacobus. He would not admit any doubt of his identity, but said the captain had forgotten his name and everything in connection with his past life and was hanging about the premises by favor of the physicians holding their horses and doing various little services for them oh how well i can imagine madame's hurry and distress she hardly knew how to reach london quickly enough she said thought would have been too slow for her but lauder's tale proved to be true her first action was to take possession of the demented man and surround him with every comfort he appeared quite indifferent to her care, and she obtained no shadow of recognition from him. She then brought to his case all the medical skill money could procure, and in the consultation which followed, the physicians decided to perform the operation of trepanning. But why? Had he been injured, John? Very badly. The hospital books showed that he had been brought there by two sailors who said he had been struck in a gale by a falling mast. The wound healed, but left him mentally a wreck. The physicians decided that the brain was suffering from pressure, and that trepanning would relieve if it did not cure. Then why was it not done at first? Whose interest was it to inquire? No money was left with the injured man. The sailors who took him to the hospital gave false names and address, and he received only such treatment as a pauper patient was likely to receive. But he made friends and was supported about the place. 
imagine now what a trial was before madame it was a difficult matter to perform the operation for the patient could not be made to understand its necessity and he was very hard to manage then picture to yourselves the terrible strain of nursing which followed though madame says it was soon brightened and lightened by her husband's recognition of her after that event all weariness was rest and suffering ease and as soon as he was able to travel both were determined to return at once to their own home he is yet however a sick man and may never quite recover a slight paralysis of the lower limbs does he not remember how he was hurt he declares his men mutinied because instead of returning to new york he had taken on a cargo for the east india company and that the blow was given him either by his first or second mate he thinks they sailed his ship out of the thames for her papers were all made out and she was ready to drop down the river with the next tide he vows he will get well and find his ship and the rascals that stole her and i should not wonder if he does he has will enough for anything madame desires to see you cornelia can you go there with me in the morning i shall be glad to go madame is like no one else she is not like herself at present i think you may be a little disappointed in her she has but one thought one care one end and aim in life her husband the doctor had judged correctly cornelia was disappointed from the first moment she was taken to the dim uncanny drawing-room by amir and left among its ill-omened gods and odd treasure-trove for nearly half an hour before madame came to her the rudely graven faces so marvellously instinct with life made her miserable she fancied a thousand mockeries and scorns in them and no thought of hyde or arenta or of the happy hours spent in that ill-boding room could charm away its sinister influence when madame at length came to her she appeared like the very genius of the place the experiences of the past year had left traces which no after experience would be able to obliterate she looked ten years older her wonderful dark eyes glowing with a soft tender fire alone remain untouched by the withering hand of anxious love they were as vital as ever they had been and when cornelia said so she answered that is because my soul dwells in them and my soul is always young i have had a year cornelia to crumble the body to dust but my soul made light of it for love's sake did your father tell you how much captain jacobus had suffered yes madame but in spite of this assurance madame went over the whole story in detail and cornelia could not help but remember that mr van ariens had said about her husband she will talk constantly and to the whole town for however far the conversation diverged for a moment madame always brought it sharply back to the one subject that interested her even arenta's peculiarly dangerous position could not detain her thoughts and interest for many minutes i am sorry for arenta she said no greater hell can there be than to live in constant fear but she has the gift of a clever tongue and every one has not the like talent and also if a woman with the decency of her sex may be a scholar arenta has learning enough to compass the fools who might injure her Mara and Robespierre are both against her husband, and she may share his fate. Mara and Robespierre! Both of the creatures have a devil. I wish them to go to the guillotine together, and I would bury them together with their faces downwards. Let them pass out of your memory. Poor Jacobus was in a worse case than Arenta. Till I be key-cold dead, I shall never forget my first sight of him in that dreadful place and then she described again her overwhelming emotions when she perceived that he was alike apathetic to his pauper condition and to her love and presence 
there never came a moment during the whole visit when it was possible to speak of Hyde. Madame seemed to have quite forgotten her liking for the handsome youth. It had been swallowed up in her adoring affection for her restored husband. Cornelia would not force the memory upon her. Some day she might remember, but for a little while Madame had more than enough of fresh material for her conversation. Every one who had known Captain Jacobus or herself called with congratulations for their happy return, and when Cornelia made a nearly daily visit with her father, Madame had these calls to talk over with her. One morning, however, the long-looked-for topic was introduced. "'I had a visit from Madame Van Heemskerk yesterday afternoon, and the dear old senator came with her to see Captain Jacobus. While they talked, Madame told me that you had refused that handsome young fellow her grandson. What could you mean by such a stupidity, Miss Moran?' Her voice had just that tone of indifference mingled with sarcastic disapproval that hurt and offended Cornelia. She felt that it was not worth while to explain herself, for Madame had evidently accepted the offended grandmother's opinion, and the memory of the young lord was lively enough to make her sympathise with his supposed wrong. "'I never considered you to be a flirt, and I am astonished. If, now, it had been a renter, I could have understood it. I told Madame Van Heemskerk that I had not the least doubt Dr. Moran dictated the refusal.' "'Oh, indeed,' answered Cornelia, with a good deal of spirit and some anger. You shall not blame my father. He knew nothing whatever of Lord Hyde's offer until I had been subjected to such insult and wrong as drove me to the grave's mouth. Only the mercy of God and my father's skill brought me back to life. Yes, I think your father to be wonderfully skilful. He has done Jacobus a great deal of good, and he now gives him hope of a perfect recovery. Dr. Moran is a fine physician. Jacobus says so. Cornelia remained silent. If Madame did not feel sufficient interest in her affairs to ask for the particulars of one so nearly fatal to her, she determined not to force the subject on her. Then Jacobus rang his bell, and Madame flew to his room to see whether his want had received proper attention. Cornelia sat still a few moments, her heart swelling, her eyes filling with the sense of that injustice, harder to bear than any other form of wrong. She was going away when Madame returned to her, and something in her eyes went to the heart of the older woman. She turned back, with a kind but peremptory word, and taking her hand, said, "'I have been thoughtless, Cornelia. Selfish, I dare say. But I do not wish to be so. Tell me, my dear, what has happened? Did you quarrel with George Hyde? And pray, what was it about?' "'We never had one word of any kind but words of affection. He wrote and asked me if he could come and see my father about our marriage on a certain night. I answered his letter with all the love that was in my heart for him, and told him to come and see my father that very night.' He never came. He never sent me the least explanation. He never wrote to me or spoke to me again. Oh, but this is a different story. His grandmother told me that you refused him. That is not the truth. Lady Annie Hyde came most unexpectedly that very day, and I suppose the easiest way to stop all inquiries about Miss Moran was to say she refused me. And after Lady Annie's arrival, what happened? I was absolutely deserted. That is the truth. I may as well admit it. Perhaps you think it impossible for a young man so good-natured to behave in a manner so cruel and dishonourable. But I assure you it is the truth. My dear, I have lived to see it almost impossible to think worse of people than they are. And if you can bear to hear more on this subject, I will tell it to you myself. I can always bear the truth. If I have lost my heart, I have not lost my head. Nor will I surrender to useless grief the happiness which I can yet make for others and for myself. If what you have told me be so—and I believe it is—then I say Lord George Hyde is an intolerable scoundrel. 
I would rather not hear him spoken of in that way. I ask your pardon, but I must give myself a little Christian liberty of railing. The man is false clean through. He was evidently engaged to Lady Annie when he first sought your love, and therefore as soon as she came here he deserted you. I will tell you plainly that I saw him last summer very frequently, and he was always with her, always listening with ears and heart to what she said, always watching her with all his soul in his eyes, ever on the lookout to see that not a breath of wind ruffled her soft wraps, or blew too strongly on her little white face. That was his way, madam. I have seen him devoting himself to you in the same manner. Yes, and to Madame Griffin, and Miss White, and a score of other ladies, old and young. You know how good-natured he was. When did you hear him say a wrong word of any one, even of Rem Van Aryans, who was often intolerably rude? Very well. I would rather have a man intolerably rude, like my nephew Rem, than one like Lord Hyde, who speaks well of everybody. Upon my word, I think that is the worst kind of slander. I think not. It is for it takes away the reputation of good men by making all men alike. But this, that, or the other, I saw Lord Hyde in devoted attendance on Lady Annie. Give him up totally. He is in his kingdom where he has a pretty woman to make a fool of. As for marriage, these young men who have the world or the better part of it, they marry where cupidity, not Cupid, leads them. Give him up entirely." "'I have done so,' answered Cornelia, and then she felt a sudden anger at herself so much so, that as she walked home she kept assuring her heart with an almost passionate insistence. "'I have not given him up. I will not give him up. I believe in him yet.' Madame's advice might be wise, but there are counsels of perfection that cannot be followed, because they are utterly at variance with that intuitive knowledge which the soul has of old, and which it will not surrender, and whose wisdom it is interiorly sure of. And after this confidence Cornelia did not go so often to Madame's. Something jarred between them. We know that a single drop taken from a glass of water changes the water level as swift as thought, and the same law is certain in all human relations. Madame was not quite the same. Something had been taken away. The level of their friendship was changed, and when Dr. Moran could not but perceive this fact, he said, Go less frequently to Madame's Cornelia. You do not enjoy your visits. Dissolve a friendship that begins to be incomplete. It is the best plan. End of chapter 11